welcome back to episode four of Stand Up Citizen. Now that the Constitution has been completed and published, it needed to be ratified. This was going to be an arduous task for the founders. The Constitution itself was published September 17th. 1787, remember that date on your calendar as Constitution Day, and the strong national government that was proposed shocked and surprised many people. Some said, oh, now we know what they've been up to in these secret meetings. It began with we the people, not we the states. It was a recognition that sovereignty resides in the person, echoes, of course, of the Declaration of Independence. While the states had sent the delegates in the first place, they were bypassed for ratification by a special convention elected by the people just for the purpose of ratifying the Constitution. That's in Article 7 of the Constitution, which says once nine states vote to ratify the Constitution, the new document, the new government is in effect. In fact, several delegates had walked out of the Constitutional Convention itself. All of the New York delegates had left, except for Alexander Hamilton. George Mason had refused nine, and that's important because as the drafter of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, He was a really influential person, not just in Virginia. His document reflected the English Bill of Rights of 1689, the Great Body of Liberties of 1641, and some of the really significant documents about individual liberty in history. But he refused to sign. You know, these principles don't just appear in a magical apparition. They were a long time in development, and a thousand years of English legal traditions and common law uh, are reflected in the founders' efforts and in the efforts of those, as you'll see, opposed the Constitution. So why did Mason refuse to sign? The answer is simple. There was no Bill of Rights. Even though several states had Bills of Rights, Many believed that the Constitution should have a Bill of Rights as well to restrain the national government. So, opposition articles began to appear in newspapers almost immediately, in fact, within about 10 days of the publication of the Constitution. The authors of these essays and articles opposed to the Constitution, used Roman pen names, Roman pseudonyms. That's the uh, influence of the Roman Republic that we see all through the founding. One example was Cato, who had opposed Caesar. Another, Brutus, who wrote lots of essays, uh, and he was named after the assassin of Caesar. Also, John DeWitt, who was a leader of the Dutch independence movement, so they didn't always use Romans. 
Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison would take up the defense of the Constitution under the name Publius after one of the founders of the original Roman Republic. So who were these people opposed to the Constitution? Well, they were who's who of the revolution. John Hancock, uh, the first signer of the Declaration of Independence and current sitting governor of Massachusetts in 1787. Samuel Adams of Tea Party and Brewery fame. Patrick Henry, whose speeches were renowned for their impact and persuasive power. George Mason, who I've mentioned because of no Bill of Rights. But also importantly, George Clinton, who was the governor of New York and had been a Revolutionary War general. In fact, much of the debate that carried on in newspapers with the essays and articles was directed at persuading New York to ratify the Constitution. So Clinton's opposition was obviously a big problem. Think of it, a, a no vote from New York would split the country into three or more political entities. New York as an independent nation with New England on the north and the rest of the states to the south. Uh, there's no United States in that scenario. So the first letters from the so-called anti-federalists appeared September 27th, signed by Cato. They continued for eight, eight months. They were principled arguments, not entirely free from digs. Uh, at one point, they're called the drafters of the Constitution, monarchy men. But they used sound political theory, philosophy, and historical precedent. Too much was at stake for anything but serious men. Their views fall into three categories, generally. Uh, one is to start over again. That was Governor Clinton's views, writing as Cato. The second was there have to be amendments before ratification can proceed. And that was Patrick Henry's view that he presented in several speeches. There, there can be ratification, but there need to be amendments right after ratification. That was the view of John Hancock and Samuel Adams. Some actually claimed and believed that the actual convention was a coup d'etat, an illegal takeover of the U.S. government. So a defense had to be mounted to persuade the voters to adopt the new constitution. So the Publius letters, which began to appear on October 27, 1787, come down to us as the Federalist Papers, very famous document. 85 essays written mainly by Hamilton and Madison. They constitute the best description of effective representative government in a republic. They are still regarded as authoritative. They're often referenced by courts, politicians, academics, 
and recently quoted during the impeachment discussion. There was a good deal of time given to Federalist Number 65, where Hamilton describes the background of the founders in creating the impeachment power. Always keep in mind that reading the great Federalist Papers gives only one side of the elevated debate that was going on with high stakes and historic consequences. Publius on the one side and the anti-federalists, those opposed to the Constitution, on the other. The fullest understanding of this whole debate and the rationale behind the, the views of all those who participated is best done reading both the Anti-Federalist Papers and the Federalist Papers. So this might have been the high point of the entire founding period, the debate over ratification. And it's a very important and practical chapter of the Age of Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. So what did they deal with between October 1787 and June 1788? Well, for example, state versus federal power, representation, checks and balances, judicial review, and the fundamental problem of faction. And what was required of citizens for a successful republic runs throughout the debate. Now, it's fine to have an eminent document like this, but all agreed that civic virtue, good faith, and informed citizens were still required. In fact, Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws, which was a great influence at the convention, insisted that in a republic, civic virtue must be cultivated for a successful government. It's clear from reading the documents by Brutus and others that the anti-federalists wanted a decentralized government. They wanted strong, strong local direct citizen participation. They wanted easy access to legislators who would be able to understand their concerns compared to a distant national government that could, in fact, develop into an aristocracy and be very remote. Quote, in a pure democracy, the people's will is declared directly. For this purpose, they must all come together to deliberate and decide. That's the writer who calls himself Brutus who we believe is Robert Yates, a New York judge. And, quote, government must be confined to a single city, or at least not an area so large that people cannot conveniently assemble. In other words, like the area around Athens, known as Attica. They also don't like that judges could decide issues of law. Uh, juries in 1787 decided issues of both law and fact, and the Constitution changed that and gave that to judges alone. Uh, so the people opposed were worried that unelected judges could overturn a jury interpretation of the law, interfering on citizens' rights. 
They also were not happy about the silence in the Constitution on God. Compared, that is, to the Declaration of Independence, which invoked the Creator. And the lack of a religious test for office. Many states had religious tests, which Jefferson, for one, opposed. Article 6 of the Constitution, no religious test shall ever be required. So Publius set about to respond, and the first response was a national defense argument. Threats from European powers and from armed Tories, that is, loyalists who did not support the revolution, required a strong national government. There were still British troops on the borders to the north, and these armed Tories in the same place and probably still had grievances. There were also uh, hostile Indian tribes that had sided with the British in the the north and the west. So Publius says, with no standing national army or navy, the new countries are vulnerable, especially to Britain and Spain. And they made that case in Federalists number five. Referring to the Articles of Confederation, the, bas- the ambassadors of individual American states would be viewed by Europeans as mere pageants of sovereignty. The states would be viewed as 13 weak little units. Publius says, uniting under a national government will cure that. And that's in Federalist 15. Publius says, consult the historical record of failed republics, failed confederacies. There were great achievements such as Athens, Rome, and Florence, but all had ultimately failed. So it's a big sticking point. The national government needs a broad taxing power and a strong military. The anti-federalist response is, "Uh uh-oh, Standing army is a potential threat to liberty. Quote, there is no real danger from Europe, unquote. And if there were any, quote, I would recur to the American spirit, which has enabled us to surmount the greatest difficulties. That's a speech by Patrick Henry at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Instead, they invoke the dictator idea for emergencies, not the dictator uh, Julius Caesar, dictator for life, but the temporary emergency power Rome used against, for example, the great Hannibal. And of course, they mean someone like George Washington, someone honorable and beyond reproach. Uh, All agreed that faction was an overriding danger. Here's what Madison says in Federalist 10. By a faction, I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or a minority of the whole, who are united and motivated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the interests of the community. In other words, in our words, a strong, influential interest group. All the founders believed that factions had 
been the, led to the ruin of prior republics. But the problem was how to deal with it. Madison again in Federalist 10. There are two methods of removing the causes of faction. The one, by destroying the liberty which is essential to its existence. The other, by to giving to every citizen the same opinions, the same passions, and the same interests. But this was, of course, in, oppressive and impractical. Quote, the causes of faction cannot be removed. Relief is only to be sought in controlling its effects. And that, to Madison, is accomplished by more competing interests, not fewer. This is a very important part of the Federalist Papers and the debate over ratification. Publius predicts a vast and diverse republic in which factions will in inevitably result. The solution is to accept faction as a fact of life and use it against itself. The Anti-Federalists believe that political units should be small, politically homogeneous, made up of citizens with similar interests and similar views, not unlike some of our gerrymandering folks. Publius says, a diversity of interests and views is natural, inevitable, and the key to liberty. A large republic will result in many and diverse interests that compete with one another and impede the development of a dominating faction. Ambition will counteract ambition. Federalist 51. The second part of the Madison and Constitution's solution is a representative government versus a direct democracy. They believe that the passions of the people will be cooled by virtuous representatives. Of course, they didn't anticipate our political parties, but their fractious effect is not out of step with our founders' concerns over faction. This natural competition concept also applies to the idea of separation of powers. The checks and balances among the three branches of government is a form of natural competition. The principle is, Three functions of government, which the anti-federalists insist should be entirely in separate hands, will, ba will balance one another. Publius agrees, but says the three branches must be forced to compete and cooperate, overlapping to some degree. Thus, the president can veto a bill passed by Congress. The Senate must approve treaties and ambassadors nominated by the president. Now, the president can't appoint ambassadors on his own by a two-thirds vote. Supreme Court justices are nominated by the president and the Senate must approve, this time by a simple majority. I cringe whenever I hear a journalist say that an ambassador serves, quote, at the pleasure of the president, as though the president alone controls them. Besides that term, pleasure of the president, smells of monarchy to me. The president is required to execute laws passed by Congress, 
which is a restatement of a, an original principle. Citizens empower Congress. Congress passes laws. The president and the executive branch make sure they are, quote, faithfully executed, unquote. The reason for congressional oversight of the executive branch is in this principle. Federal courts may intervene to resolve matters that are at an impasse. Congress can impeach and remove a president, much in the news of late, who commits treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors, by which the founders meant abuse of power or corruption, but not merely for policy differences or incompetence. And, of course, in an impeachment, the chief justice presides over the president's trial in the Senate. So the result is a strong national government that is checked from within, a natural competition for power, checked by the need to cooperate and the founders' structure. Uh, we look back on over 200 years of success, but those opposed to the Constitution regarded this design as dangerously innovative. It was, after all, unprecedented. A good example is seeing the Constitution as a whole, not just discrete pieces and parts. Other issues that were debated were, of course, important. Representation in Congress, small states versus big states. The answer, proportional to population in the House and two senators for every state, no matter what the population. This is the famous Connecticut Compromise. Lifetime appointments for justices. The reason tends to keep judges out of partisan politics. The president or an executive council of three, which is what they debated over long into the convention. Washington would be the first president and his prestige was reassuring in finally agreeing to a single, what they call chief magistrate. What about no Bill of Rights? Egad, say the Anti-Federalists. Some ancient laws like habeas corpus are in the Constitution. But Publius responds in Federalist 84 to the concern for no Bill of Rights. All natural rights belong to the people, period. Governments have no right to say whether people have rights or don't they. By enumerating, listing, the citizens' rights, some unscrupulous person may say someday that a right which is not enumerated in the Constitution may be denied to citizens. Just as James Wilson, one of the founders, would later say, the Constitution does not create new rights, but secures and enlarges rights we already possess by nature. The social contract is not between citizens and the government. No, that's a common misperception. It is between and among citizens to create a government over which citizens are the master. But the Bill of Rights issue persisted, ratifying conventions in the big states of Virginia, Massachusetts, and New York voted narrowly to ratify. But they insisted there should be a Bill of Rights in the first Congress. 
in the National Archives, you can see for yourself the first 10 amendments to the Constitution written out in longhand. These issues are with us still that the anti-federalists and Publius debated. They rise and fall with the times. Look around you, do you think that faction is still with us? Do you think the Citizens United decision, for example, promotes or restricts factions? That's for a future episode. Well, the Constitution was ratified, but by a narrow margin in some crucial states. Virginia, uh, on June 25th, 1788, ratified by a margin of 10 votes, 89 to 79. A month later, on July 26th, in New York, the voting was 30 to 27 in favor. Close call. So let's take a look in the next episode at some current issues and weigh them against the founder's design. Against Publius's solution, for example, to deal with faction and its negative effects. And later on, on the concept of civic virtue and what the founders expected of citizens and public officials. Remember, that's one of the goals of this series of podcasts. Share this if you find the podcast useful. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. Our next episode, we'll consider whether gerrymandering holds up to our founders' principles.